each one of these episodes has a different director, different writers. They're coming in, like the big name of Del Toro is, is of course, sort of overseeing all of it as a producer instead of a showrunner. But they're almost like standalone short films being adapted from these short stories. And I love the idea as a writer of something like this existing because then you're getting these, you have the potential to get a bunch of like cool short fiction being adapted. I would like to see this go on and grow into something like Love, Death, and Robots and start to become a recurring, like, hey, we're going to get, you know, 10 more episodes of this with, like, 10 more stories being adapted. I think that would be really cool and good for horror as a genre. Welcome, friends, to episode 246 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. <laughs> and this week we discuss the stories being adapted in Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities. Hello, James. It is Halloween, so I am talking slower and hopefully creepier to set the mood. How do you feel about this? <laughs> Deeper, definitely helping. You know, it, it's finally setting in that we're in October. It feels like spooky season a little bit since yeah. we read these stories. I feel like the episodes are gonna take longer and to talk with such pregnant pauses in my speech. <laughs> double double the length, but it's very like cabinet of curiosity, so yeah. I like it. I don't think I can keep this up. So <laughs> I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna return to a more standard <laughs> speech here. But yeah, this is one of my favorite times of year. Uh, it's always fun to do something kind of different and fun for Halloween. And we're trying that this this year with this special coverage. Um, we are covering Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities. However, uh, because of the timeline, we figured out that we weren't really going to have access to the, to the episodes in time for our Halloween uh, episode on Ink to Film. So what we could do is tackle the short stories. So that's what we're going to do. Um, as of recording this, I think only like two or four of the episodes are even out. Um, but we're going to talk about the short stories that provided the inspiration. And we're going to do it in order of episode release. So if you have seen some of the show, but maybe not all of it, um, you're still safe to sort of go chronologically through with us. And we'll talk about the short stories Without any knowledge of the show, we're only going to talk about the short stories, what we thought of each of them, and uh, you know, maybe some theorizing about the adaptations, um, but mostly just focusing on like who these authors are, what these stories are about, and what they're like, and um, that can provide you with insight of whether or not you want to go check them out yourself, um, or at least just give you some understanding of what he's drawing on. And we will be covering the episodes of the show also, we should mention. Next week, we'll be talking about that. That's the plan. We're going to do two more episodes on this. One covering, I think, uh, the first three. And then the final one, we'll be covering the two HP Lovecraft episodes, um, which chronologically fall later in, this, in the season. So it ended up working out. I've been really surprised. You know, there was a wide range of stories, but I, I guess, like, if the collection really was kind of hand-picked by Guillermo del Toro yeah. makes sense for 
a lot of this to be sort of wide reaching and horror and like there's some body horror there's some cosmic horror there's some a lot of different elements of horror that i'm loving yeah one of the main things that i'm excited about here though is for the longest time guillermo del toro was attached to in the mountains of madness i believe it's called by hp lovecraft and he that was like his dream to, and we were, we were coming off the hobbit that was a dream of his was to create the hobbit as well so obviously mountains of madness never worked out and in this way, Guillermo del Toro has found a way to somewhat have his hands <laughs> on some H.P. Lovecraft properties. Directly, at least. I think indirectly you can see the influence. Um, and that's something we'll get into with Lovecraft in general. He's a very influential author, controversial, but undeniably influential. Um, I think these stories all gravitate toward, towards a certain cosmic creature, body horror space, and... There's a few that are like somewhat outliers, but you can see why he felt like they probably fit. Um, most of them are older. Most of them are from like the early 1900s um, with a couple of outliers. And then the one Emily Carroll story, which is quite recent. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about, you know, maybe theorize a little bit about why he might have chose these. One thing I just want to say, though, is like I love the idea of this, of a anthology series where you're adapting different short stories. Now, not, not all of them are adaptations, which we should also say. We will be covering the non-adaptations. Um, although, actually, two of them say something about being adapted from an original story by, by Del Toro. So yeah. I'm not sure if those are available to read. I couldn't find that anywhere. Some of the Some of the information behind this is hard to suss out what's going on. Regardless, we're going to cover the other episodes from the season in our Patreon episode, which will probably come out next month. Um, not this month, because, again, we just don't have the episodes yet. But look for that in the future. Um, and my point is, I, I still like this, much like Love, Death, and Robots. I love these like anthology series that bring in different creators. I think each one of these episodes has a different director, different writers, they're coming in, like, the big name of Del Toro is, is, of course, sort of overseeing all of it as a producer instead of a showrunner. But they're almost like standalone short films being adapted from these short stories. And I love the idea as a writer of something like this existing because then you're getting these... You have the potential to get a bunch of, like, cool short fiction being adapted. I would like to see this go on and grow into something like Love, Death, and Robots and start to become a recurring, like, hey, we're going to get... You know, 10 more episodes of this with like 10 more stories being adapted. I think that would be really cool and good for horror as a genre. Definitely. I mean, I don't think Guillermo del Toro is necessarily in, in creating the show doing something very new as much as he's kind of picking up where something like Tales from the Crypt left off. Sure. But like we don't have Tales from the Crypt right now, right? So right. we need something like this. <laughs> and that's what's cool is that I'm sure he was super influenced by a lot of that kind of uh, anthology horror kind of stuff and, and, and wanting that in the space decided to... Now, like and maybe my Tales from the Crypt knowledge is not very good, which admittedly I, I'm sure it isn't, but um, this feels like it's like fairly serious adult, like it, it, a lot of horror stuff I remember is 
from like my youth was a lot more geared towards ch- with kids, but maybe that's just what was on my radar. I, I think Tales from, I think it was just the era that it was coming out. It was yeah. like the late eighties, early nineties. And I think like a horror had a certain, you think of like the Pennywise from it, from that mini series. And like, that's kind of the horror some of the time that I think of from especially television. Yeah. It's like teenagers, like that kind of area. Yeah. Well, I just, this feels a little different to me because this is what I'm ultimately getting at. And uh, we'll see once we actually watch the show. Cause we haven't seen it yet. Um, but regardless, uh, instead of theorizing about what the show might be, we, we'll save some of that for our future episodes where we actually talk about the show. This time is to devote to the authors, which we want to make sure we devote plenty of time for. So what we're going to actually do is try something a little unusual. We've never done this before. We are going to set. We, we calculated it out. We want about a 60-minute uh, episode as far as like discussions. So we're going to do 12 minutes for each of our five stories. And we're going to set a timer. And we're going to try and hold ourselves to that. So if the timer comes and we're, we haven't quite finished our thoughts, you know, we'll just quickly wrap up and move on to the next one because we want to make sure we, we give everybody a good amount of time without, without lingering too long on any one story. Um, so, again, we're going to go in episode release chronologically. Um, that does skip a few here and there. Like, I think the first episode is not an adaptation, so we're skipping to episode two. But I'm not going to describe that in every time. Just in general, it goes chronologically. We will give the title of each story, um, which I think co- basically corresponds to the title of each episode, with one exception. So, um, all right, if you're ready, I'm going to start my timer. All right, so the first story is The Graveyard Rats by Henry Kuttner. So, real quick bio, bio for Henry. Uh, he was born in 1915, died in 1958. So, pretty young. What is that, like 43? Um, wow, that's very young. Uh, that's scary. <laughs> um, he grew up in relative poverty. Uh, as a young man, he worked in his spare time at a literary agency for his uncle uh, in Los Angeles. And he sold his first short story called The Graveyard Rats to Weird Tales in early 1936. Um, he was known for his literary prose and worked in collaboration with his wife, C.L. Moore, throughout his career. Uh, they met through their association with the, quote, Lovecraft Circle, a group of writers and fans who corresponded with H.P. Lovecraft. They worked together in the 1940s and 1950s, and most of their work was credited to pseudonyms, mainly Lewis Paget and Lawrence O'Donnell. So that was one thing I also read about Kuttner is that he used multiple pseudonyms, and because of that, People think he isn't as well known because he's kind of viewed as like these separate authors. And like a lot of times people don't realize it's all one person. Um, and, and, you know, people have said like it actually kind of works to his detriment as far as like his legacy. Um, he was a friend of Lovecraft's as well as of Clark Ashton Smith and contributed several stories to the Cthulhu mythos genre invented by those authors. Uh, among these were The Secret of Kralitz, The Eater of Souls, The Salem Horror, The Invaders and The Hunt. Kuttner even added lesser-known deities to the mythos. So I thought that was interesting, seeing his connection to Lovecraft, who we'll get to. This Lovecraft circle thing will come back. Um, He he came a little bit after Lovecraft, but clearly was, like, working in dialogue with him as this kind of horror was starting to come up. And uh, I did not read this story first. I I read some of the other ones first. And I immediately was struck by how we were talking about, like, Salem, we were in New England, and, like, graveyards, and, like, stuff was a little bit that, like, uh, there's just, like, a cosmic feel to a lot of Lovecraft stories, and it felt like he was drawing inspiration on that. So when I read that, it totally makes sense. But, um, yeah, what were your thoughts on the story in general? 
Yeah, so I saw that this was the shortest, so I started with this one, actually. This oh, you did? the first okay. short story I read, yeah. Um, so this idea of a grave robber is kind of, he's yeah. kind of going around and he's... So he, he is like, he owns, he doesn't own the graveyard. He like, uh, he works at this graveyard, right? But then he also robs the graves. Right. And so he's going and realizing that a lot of these bodies, even soon after being buried, are disappearing in these like gnawed holes. And he's seeing yeah. like like large rats basically scurry away anytime he's busting into these. And he's he's tr- he's tried to shoot some of them. He says that they're like really big R.O.U.S.s. <laughs> yeah, um, they are rodents of unusual size. Um, they are the size of cats. He was saying so and bigger and some are bigger. And um, yeah, the the idea of these tunnels underneath this graveyard that like connect to unknown spaces comes back in some of the other stories we cover later on. There's a lot of similarities um, you can draw on some of these. So this sort of despicable character is like feeling like he's getting ripped off by a bunch of rats and he's he decides to chase him in because he sees this body get dragged in. So he decides to crawl in the, yeah. in the into these catacombs. Great. Basically. <laughs> he's got his pistol and he's and he's going quick. He's going quick trying to keep up with him. And it's not until he's been in there for a little bit that he realizes the there's a possibility of a collapse in these tunnels. Yeah. And he doesn't necessarily fit super well. Nope. And he sort of navigates through this. He, try, he wants to turn around, but he can't. Yeah. So I, I wanted to stop you just real quick. Like I have claustrophobia, so so this was absolutely like like the rats. I was like, oh man, I'm not really scared of rats. I'm gonna read a story about rats, whatever. Like I think rats are actually pretty cute in real life. Like, but the idea of like a you know cat sized like corpse eating rat, yeah, that's that's pretty freaky. But um, not to mention it, in the space, right? It was the space. It was the idea of crawling through this because mu- it's it's described as like raining, so it's it's not just dirt. It's like mud, and he's getting um, he can't turn around, he can't move. He's feeling things behind him, but he can't look at them. And like he's got this one flashlight, he starts getting bitten. Like yeah, that would have freaked that me out. That stuff's too, pretty. Yeah. Pretty creepy. I, I was thinking about you because I knew how much it would affect you. I was like, damn, this this one's going to hit home for Luke, <laughs> I'm sure. And then, uh, yeah, when you're down there, you can't turn around. You can't maneuver well. And things start biting you from behind. You can't look back to see it. Yeah. And then they start swarming you. At, the, at times, he, he was, like, swarmed, and then he has the bright idea to, like, get into it. And we all knew it was coming and what was going to happen. I, th- I At least I did. I didn't. I don't know. I guess I didn't I didn't think he was going to wind up in this coffin, but it's what happened. So he, yeah, he, he basically tries to turn around, so he goes into, like, an offshoot of a tunnel, which, like, as soon as I heard there was all these different offshoots and he decides to go down, I'm like, all right, he's lost now. Um, and he does. Um, but, yeah, there actually is a moment, too, where he sees, like, a shambling corpse crawling zombie yeah um so there's something else going on and it does talk about how maybe these these rats were like dealing with like something else going on underneath the ground it seemed like they had some sort of direction or something yeah maybe something was commanding them like there's reference to the pied piper and like you know that myth maybe that being tied to what's going on here um and again like several of these stories are set like in or around salem and so there's this implication of like witchcraft that has like permeated the space. And so maybe that is affecting things. And um, he, he sees like dark shapes moving beyond the rats a couple of times. Like maybe that was corpses or maybe it was something else. that wasn't quite clear. The claustrophobia does start to kick in, even if you don't have full on claustrophobia, when you think when you start thinking about these tight spaces and then he makes the decision to basically purposely collapse one of the one of the tunnels, thinking he knows where he's at and he can escape. 
And what happens is he collapses this tunnel and he and he crawls into this coffin and realizes that once he's in the coffin, he can't get back up. There's no way he can get up. Yeah, through he's now stuck in a coffin six feet deep, which is like that's a, that's like a, a fear a lot of people have, I think. Right. Like and that was a legitimate fear and still kind of is. But um, I, I know for a time people talk about like um Bells on a string, right? Bells on a string, right? Because yeah. like people were convinced they were going to wake up in the coffin, and apparently it did happen sometimes because we weren't as good at like making sure people were dead uh, back in the day. And yeah, like people people wake up buried, and um, I don't know, you know, I, I can't tell you how often, but I've heard that like you yeah. know, there's a whole Ryan Reynolds movie about this. Yeah, that's He's true. That buried. Ryan Reynolds movie is actually pretty good, is my memory of it, but I, I saw it a long time ago. Like sort of a bottle story. It's pretty wild. But yeah, so it definitely terrifying the idea of being like buried alive. But then he's not only buried alive, he starts feeling these rats like eating him from the feet up. Um mm-hmm. so so you're now you're a you're a man who's trapped in the muddy earth six feet down in a coffin, getting eaten alive from the feet up. So that's pretty dark. Pretty gruesome, yeah. Yeah, pretty gruesome. And I was gruesome. like, oh, so these kind of stories is what we're going to get. <laughs> and this story was written in 1936, you know? So this this was, I think, not something you saw a lot of, especially something this dark. I do think the idea that he is a grave robber softens it a little bit because you feel a little bit like he's getting what he deserves, right? Like, he's not just, like, some innocent. This is a man who's defiling graves. He's stealing gold teeth, and he's talking about jewelry that he sees on people's bodies that he takes and steals. And that's the whole thing is he's like upset at these rats because they run off with a lot of the loot <laughs> that he wants. So he is himself kind of a graveyard rat, I guess, in a sense, right? It, I think it gives permission to the audience to, yeah, just have fun with the story. Right. Like, it's gruesome and scary for sure. Uh, but it's still like giving you that out. Whereas like, I think more modern stories might not give you that out and they might be like, isn't this awful? This, this innocent is dragged into this and having to deal with the situation it makes it kind of changes the context. Yeah. It's a striking image too. that final image being stuck on, stuck in that coffin. Like I assume that's part of what sort of attracted Del Toro to this one. Cause it, on the surface, I guess it seems like kind of a simple story, but I don't know. There's something cool about that. Like you can just take that premise. You can develop some really fucking weird, gross graveyard rats, which I I hope we're going to get, you know, like some some cool creatures. Um, Hopefully, hopefully not fully CGI that I'm sure they'll use some, you know, like augmentation. But I hope there's some practical effects being used here because that's always the creepiest to me is when you see like some sort of puppet. (laughs) I think I think we'll see a good amount with Del Toro's track record. But you know, a blending of the two usually helps. uh, So we'll see. Um, I think there's no question that that this story is going to play out pretty similarly to how it seems in the story, at least to me, if I was going to adapt this, it's the the bones are all there. And you would keep it pretty much the same. And you can do so much horrifying visual stuff in like tight spaces with mud all around and slipping and sliding and a flashlight failing you. I think you I think you're going to see a little bit of an exploration of the character where we sort of set up his grave robbing. I mean, that's in the story. But I just think, Mm -hmm. you know, when you're talking about filling a which I assume are there, they're all going to be about about an hour. But maybe I'm wrong about on that. I would guess 45 to an hour. Yeah. Yeah, So, you know, I think you're going to develop the character. I think he's still going to be not likable. I think he's going to be, you know, we're going to keep that sort of defilement theme throughout. Um, And then we're going to see him uh, getting himself into trouble. Now, my question is, I feel like you probably need to introduce a second character. I feel like a lot of these stories that only have like one character who's not really interacting with anyone else. 
are tough to translate to screen. So I feel like there's going to be a helper. You know what I mean? Like he's going to have a coworker or something. And that's going to change things, right? Because you're going to have one character on the outside looking in. Is that character going to follow him down? I guess that's going to be my prediction. I'm going to predict that they're going to introduce a second character to all this. And that's going to be sort of the thing that changes this from from being a super straightforward adaptation. Because I just, as I'm imagining adapting this thing, I'm like, you got to give this guy somebody to talk to. We're not going to get as much interior thoughts. Just one man and the rats is not super interesting as much as like, if he has some sort of like collaborator or co-conspirator or whatever you would call him, who's like helping him rob, rob the graves. I mean, I, I think I read this story in less than 45 minutes, so you would think that they would have to do some expansion for sure. Yeah, it's pretty short. Interesting that it was published in uh, Weird Tales. That's uh, uh, one of HP Lovecraft's like major publishers. Every now and then you will see still to this day some calls for uh, for stories from Weird Tales. I'm not sure the exact history of the publication and if it's like changed form, um, but it is still around as far as I know, uh, although it, I don't think it like publishes regularly. Um, again, I'm not an expert on it. I just I do submit short fiction, so I keep an eye on a lot of these markets and I've seen Weird Tale calls occasionally. Um, and yeah, it's cool to see another connection right like i think a lot of these authors that he chose are connected with one another oh there's our timer all right uh so we're moving on to the autopsy by michael shia i'm actually not sure how to pronounce it it might be shay not sure yeah i'm not sure either michael shay uh this is the story yeah it's called the autopsy it was published in 1980 um and this one i believe was in uh science fiction and fantasy magazine if i am remembering correctly um, yeah, Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction, which definitely is still going today. Um, it was nominated for both a Hugo and Nebula Award when it came out. Um, he would follow it up with The Color Out of Time, a work influenced by the Cthulhu mythos. Um, his work overlaps science fiction and fantasy, thematic use of demons and aliens that act as endoparasites. And his interest in the Cthulhu mytho- mythos continued throughout his career. Um, and unfortunately he did pass away in 2014. So RIP, um, one of the more modern authors, um, other than, uh, uh, Emily Carroll, he's, you know, the most modern author of these stories. Um, and then, yeah, so let's talk about the autopsy. We got Dr. Winters showing up in this small town where he's friends with the sheriff, a man named Craven. And he first shows up, meets him. There's a couple of references to having cancer. He talks about how he like has cancer. I think it's stomach cancer or something. And he talks to it like it's a like it's a companion. And mm-hmm. I thought that was really creepy. Um, and I immediately got that like body horror. Like that establishes body horror early. Like we're going to be dealing with that, right? And he's he's there to like perform autopsies. So we're like, okay. Yeah, uh, he's he's investigating these deaths. Um, and he's trying to determine, I think, like if an explosion killed them or like how liable <laughs> like the the company is going to be because they're these miners. And like, did they di- they did they happen to die on the job or was it related to something that happened on the job and whether or not someone's going to be liable seems to be partly why he's there, although he's very like pessimistic about the whole thing. But yeah, it's mysterious. There's mysterious circumstances we learn from this. The sheriff. Um, there was this man who was behaving very strangely. He had this like orb um that's described as like you can see some technology in it but it's kind of small he somehow got a hold of it even though it was like at the police station 
And he like yeah. ran off with it and jumped into the mine. <laughs> it landed on top of like an elevator that was going down. And then some, there was an explosion. And um, now he's going to look at these bodies. And then I thought it was, it was cleverly set up, right? Like the, the sheriff is super tired and they're friends. And he's talking about, it. he's like, yeah, I'm going to observe. And he's like, no, nah, man, you just go home. Um, you need rest. I'll be here in the morning, <laughs> you know? Um, and we're like, okay, yeah. Um, but they're basically out in this warehouse that has been like converted into a makeshift morgue. So it's out in the middle of nowhere. Um, there it's, it seems very sort of thrown together and he's in this room and there, we know there's like these 10 bodies that are, uh, just in different states of being blown apart. And then there's like weird details, like that stuff, not having any blood and like, um, he's not sure why, and they're trying to figure out was there a, was there a killer who was kidnapping people? There's these people who had gone disapp- like been disappearing leading up to this, um, and and including several that he found who were like possibly chopped up like maybe a cannibal, right? Was is is yeah. on the loose? They found like the the local police found like a body butchered and put into a bag and hanging from a tree. Yeah, and then these deputies had to stay there and, and guard it. And then when they came back to check on the deputies, nothing was there. The body, the bag of, with the body was gone, and the deputies were gone. Deputies so. were gone too. Small town works perfectly because it's like the only way you could like imagine something like this not being bigger news. But it's like yeah, it's small town, so like no one really knows about it. It's like often this like mining town. Yeah, so creepy setup, right? And then we get the actual autopsy starts to take place, and we get this Dr. Winters. I thought it was really clever. Like, he keeps, like, seeing himself in a reflection, and he's talking to himself. Again, we got a character who's, like, other than the sheriff early on, mostly just talking to himself. There's some clever ways to do that, by introducing the cancer that he talks to, which is super fucked up, and then also the the sort of reflection that he talks to. Um, And then he's starting to look at these bodies, and he's investigating them, and he eventually makes it to... I think it's the guy, right, who originally jumped down with the orb. It's interesting, though, because he, like, goes through some of them. And what he's looking for are, like, entry wounds of, like, explosive shrapnel, things like that. And he's realizing, like, this is normal. Nothing's wrong here. And that this is normal. And then he sort of backtracks to some of the bodies after a little while and starts finding weird things in them. Yeah. And it gets weirder and weirder as he goes. And then, uh, yeah, he starts conversing <laughs> with one of the bodies. Uh, it, it, it begins to speak and, um, it's hard to describe exactly how this plays out, but basically he learns that there is some sort of alien creature trapped inside this body and it is sort of puppeting the body. And, um, he, he basically says like, you're trapped now. I'm not going to let you out or something. But then like, there's some sort of like tendril that shoots out and gets him. I was picturing like a thing the whole time. Oh yeah. This gets really, it definitely feels a lot like that. And, and it's more like this, this being is, it's so advanced and so far beyond us. And it knows so much about how the inner workings of how the human body isn't necessarily unique in the universe and the way that these things tend to go. They can sort of latch. Because it has like a history of like it's gone to all these different like worlds and it's done this many times. And it once it gets in there, it takes over the sensory perceptions of whatever it's sort of um, a parasite on. But it leaves the being alive. So the person is still tortured and like not at the wheel. And that was dark, right? Like you, you still are kind of aware of everything that's going on. Um, you're still in there. And um, it also is like 
consuming the minds of these people in a sense and it's like learning from them and like it could, that, that's how it understands english and is able to speak with him um it understands multiple languages actually and um he the he being winters is very impre- like he's like okay this thing is like clearly very advanced it has like a great understanding of language so it's very good at what it's doing um and yeah so he tries to get it trapped or whatever but then he wakes up after getting attacked and he's on the table now and it's just left like one arm working for him um, and his head his neck and yeah. his neck and then one arm and it's described as like something to do with like it needs him to have some motor function so it can like understand how that works so well, i think it's as it transfers it needs to be able to test to see that the body's in working condition and things like that because there's this whole transfer process that happens this this thing is so advanced and so like beyond us that it it's kind of has this folly where it thinks that like once the, the people have been immobilized there's nothing that can stop it so it's kind of just this like blob yeah that can like shoot out tendrils and things and so as the like the, the transfer happens um he's basically transferring from this this body into winter's body and as this transfer is happening um the the person whose body it was who was it john something yeah i didn't write down the name i think it is john something he he basically has like a last moment of motor function where he like slashes and like like basically like has the scalpel land to where winters can grab yeah, it. Yeah, gets the gets the scalpel within winters' reach. I think is most important. Yeah, and this like blob is basically going into winters because he's been kind of splayed open by this other person. Which other... like let's pause for a moment and like he's essentially trapped in his body with only his arm. He can move a little bit, but he can't even move it that much. And he um, is seeing his own body being sort of have an autopsy almost performed. Like it's cut down the sternum. There's a lot of body horror in this, right, as we're describing the way autopsies go, which is creepy as hell. Well, and I wanted to talk about the author and the, the way that he went about a lot of this real quick, too. Yeah. And it's just that, like, he was very meticulous about the way that he was talking about the autopsy, the specific parts, very graphic about yeah. it in a way that, like, you would have to be really interested in autopsies and, and the human body yeah. in that way. And it's it's pretty gruesome as well. And then that leads to this really, really in-depth look at, like, his understanding, I think the author doing research and an understanding of, like, different systems and theoretical ideas of what consciousness can be and what like powers the body and all this other it, it got pretty deep in a way that i wasn't expecting the story to yeah really it, cool it, uh, honestly really complicated too yeah. in ways that i was like i was like having to reread multiple times to kind of understand really what, medical right like a lot of medical jargon um but yeah it had that had that at least to a layman it felt pretty realistic you know if a doctor read this i'd be curious to know if that you know they find things to poke at or not but it was cool, and and I, f- I found it convincing. And then yeah, this this weird blob um, again. The the and so that the guy that's actually even darker, I think, than what's happening to Doctor Winters is this guy that has been host to this parasite for a while now, and his body is decomposing, and like he's basically an animated corpse, and yet has been kept alive by the parasite, um, and that. That's dark, right? Like he has been aware of this parasite having ultimate control, and yet he is also trapped in this decomposed. He's seen his own body turn into a corpse, and like his mind is still trapped in there. Like that's that's pretty fucking dark. And there's that moment where, like I said, he he gets like one last revenge motor function, and yeah. he's like he's basically built up all this stuff. And there's this moment of connection where 
through this like mask of decay, Winters looks up and looks into the eyes of this person and knows that he's still in there. Yeah. And they kind of have that like humanity moment where they're like, let's fucking get this guy, this alien together. Let's let's team up against it, basically, as his last because he dies as the creature leaves his body. He dies because right. yeah, there's only a moment. And then once the alien's gone, now he's in a corpse. So he's dead. Right. And so the alien's going inside of Winters, like he's watching it sort of start to take over his spinal it's column. It's already cut down his sternum and it's starting to crawl into his body. Yeah. And and, and th- this is where he has his revenge. He yeah. grabs onto that scalpel and just wrecks his body. Yeah. So he can't reach, like the, the alien has, is like aware that it's like a moment of vulnerability. So it thinks that like, I just won't allow the arm to go down far enough to, to like cut me or to do anything, or to grab me, anything like that. Right. Mm-hmm. But he also notes that in this moment, because he is out of one body and getting into the next, it has no perception. Like its perception is all tied to its host, it seems like. Right. So because of that, until it gets inside of him, it, ha- it can't perceive anything. And Winters knows that or he's figured that out. So he takes that scalpel and just fucking wrecks himself. You know, stabs himself in the eyes, ears. Slits the carotid artery. Yeah. And he's even described, he says, it's like, I vandalized the, you know, he leaves like a note for him. He's like, I vandalized this place. Enjoy it. (laughs) Yeah. I love that that moment, too, of defiance where he's basically just like, I, you know, he's basically handing off the keys to a car or to a house or something like that. And he's like, he's like, enjoy it. The plumbing's messed up. (laughs) The the eyes aren't working. Like, you're not going to be able to see anything, hear anything. So, yeah, it was it was pretty amazing. And then uh, we are out of time, but just real quick, he also leaves leaves a message written in blood for his friend, the sheriff that basically says like alien cut, kill something inside bodies, alien, alien in me, cut, kill. Yeah. Yeah. So he leaves this message and he knows that he's, he's basically rendered the body useless. So it can be kind of a prison. And he, he assumes that his friend, the sheriff is going to be able to come and finish it off. Got to move on to the next story that we've run out of time. Okay. We are on to some other animals meet by Emily Carroll published in 2016 as a webcomic. So Emily Carroll, I, I wasn't able to find a ton about her. She was born in 83 or 84. So like, honestly, she's like only a little bit older than me, which is pretty amazing. Um, she's a comics author from Ontario, Canada. She started making comics in 2010 and her horror webcomic, His Face All Red, went viral around Halloween of 2010. Since then, Carol has published two books of her own work, created comics for various comic anthologies, and provided illustrations for other works. She has won several awards, including the Ignats and two Eisners. Uh, she drew and published her first comic on her website in 2010. Carol has continued to publish horror short stories on her website. So she's this webcomic. She's got a couple books out. One other note I did have here that I thought was interesting. Are you familiar with the game Gone Home? I am, yeah. So uh, she created illustrations for that game. It looks so much like her style. So that makes a lot of sense. Pretty cool. I never played it. Did you actually play that game? I have it on Steam. I played it a little bit. Mm-hmm. I haven't I haven't beat it. I think anything. that was one of the ones that was like at the center of the firestorm with Gamergate and shit, I think it was the gone home game. Really? Yeah. I think, I think because it got like really good reviews and a bunch of people got really mad. A bunch of assholes got really mad that it got good reviews um, because it has like really heavy feminist like themes, I think. And I might be mixing it up with another game, but I'm pretty sure it was gone home. Just to talk yeah. from like somebody who reads a lot of comics. I thought that uh, first of all, we bought a collection that we thought that her story was in and it ended up not being, but the, yes. I'm glad to have bought the collection, honestly. No, it's um, cool. So, yeah, I was going to say, um, through the Woods collection, I told you, hey, we got to buy this. This is what, because we were seeing it reported that it was from this collection. But the story that was adapted is not in this collection. <laughs> we, through, like, 
like literally like the day before we recorded, we're like trying to figure out what's going on. Why can't I figure out which story it is? Finally, we realized that there was a web comic that was adapted that is not in this book. Um, but we're, you know, at least 99% certain is the right one. And that's the one we're going to, we're going to cover here. So ultimately we didn't need to buy the book, but, um, yeah, I agree. This book's really cool. The art's great. Um, the stories are neat. I actually read through a couple of them just cause I was like, I need to figure out if this is the one that I'm looking for. So I've read some of them cause they're pretty sh- quick reads, great art, um, spooky. A lot of these could, could have made for good episodes from, as I was looking, I'm like, this could be it. This could be it. This would be cool. So, um, I like it and I like to see someone like this. Um, the only woman being adapted. Um, I think the, the, uh, director of this is a woman I saw. So, um, I'm glad, uh, Del Toro at least used one episode to do something like this. Um, you know, in the future, I'd like to see more inclusion, less dead white guys. If you were to come back and do this again. Um, but you know, still, I think it's cool. This story, uh, interesting. It is, uh, so again, it's a web comic. So very unusual compared to the others, not a lot of text. Um, it's mostly reacting to the art. Um, and in fact, I felt like the, because I'm used to like covering Alan Moore and stuff who we've talked about on the show a lot. And like, he always has tons of text, right? Like there's a lot of words in his graphic novels. This is very bare bones, like just like little phrases here or there. And a lot of it's sort of reading between the lines and just kind of like taking in the artwork. I love the artwork. I thought it was great. And uh, the story itself is cool. Yeah. So, you know, talking about something like Alan Moore immediately is like that's obviously like his art matches the amount of text that he has. But I think some of the time to visually tell the story because you have the opportunity in comics is so cool. And to see less text and more visuals makes it more interpretive and gives it more of that just inherently, like if you're reading it, to figure out what's going on, you do have to actually look at the images. And I feel that sometimes people are used to reading books, so they just read the text in comics and fly past the imagery. So I I thought it was really cool the way that she was able to like build it all into her storytelling and the way that I I just could, I was so struck by the way that she was using like black and white and different colors to like just dominate certain pages and flow into the next thing. And it all, uh, the way that Web comics, because it's not like a printed medium, have like allowed people to get crazy with because, you know, we've talked in the past about how color and like having an entire black page is a lot of ink when they print it out to thousands and thousands of copies. So they used to have to think about those kinds of things when they would create certain certain comics and to see the way that like all of these things can be. And also what we ended up reading was very vertical oriented, Mm -hmm. which is like scrolling on the Internet or on a phone or something versus in comics is usually left to right. So just seeing her, um, this story was so amazing and, and seeing it all depicted through the art I thought was, was really fun. Yeah. I, I've done some research into Junji Ito in the past. And one of the things I remember people talking about was how the reveal and there's this moment in a comic where you turn the page, right. And you see right. something mm-hmm. and, uh, that can create the horror, right? Like you see some horrific image and I think she does that here, but it's interesting because you're usually like clicking a next button, but then your yep. screen loads it. So you have this moment where it still like pops up and, and it's like you get that moment that you can't get just reading text. Um, and yeah, I don't want to imply that it's somehow lesser than because it doesn't have a lot of text to it. I actually, yeah, I don't think that's true. I think it's just different. No, right? and I didn't think you were saying that. I just, I was noting it. Yeah. And um, you, you are left to sort of interpret, like really look at the art and try and figure out exactly what's going on. Pay very close attention to expressions on people's faces and, what's being conveyed, mood, atmosphere, all these things. So let's talk a little bit about the story. 
Um, this is about this woman who is selling this product called Aloe Glow, uh, which is some sort of like cream slash lotion that is supposed to be anti-aging like, beauty cream. anti-aging like you hear about this kind of stuff right like it's supposed to reinvigorate you and like um we immediately start whenever there's like a woman selling something like that and then she talks about how like it gives her a rash so she's like I, she, she doesn't, doesn't believe in the product she doesn't use it herself yeah. but she's still very good at these like she has these parties where people show up and buy it which you know there's a lot of products like this out there it's really interesting, right? Because you're immediately bringing in like body dysmorphia, um, the beauty standards of the industry, beauty yeah. standards of you know society, honestly, and um, the the lengths people will go to to appear a certain way, and it's very dark. And um, the the lotion itself seems to have so it. That's the other thing I was going to say about this. It's very surreal, and I wasn't sure what was actually happening and what was sort of in the mind of the main character. And that's true in a lot of these stories. So I felt like it held it like was thematically connected in that sense. But like, are we to imagine? Because okay, so there's she does one of these parties and she gives out the lotion. And one of the most horrific panels is all of the women are transforming into these like hideous blob creatures that are still have like eyes and noses and bones and stuff throughout them. And like, they're like, coming apart and they're talking to her and like reaching out for her and their arms are extending and really grody and like affecting. I'm not sure if it actually happened. I think it was in the mind of the character for because sure. Because then she uses it herself and she becomes like a blob creature at one point. But then kind of, I think there was some some so there's certain lenses that we're viewing the story through, in my opinion, because yeah, she's looking in the mirror. Exactly, the lens through the mirror, the lens that she's seeing everybody else using the products, and then the lens of herself, because ultimately she does use it, and she says, "Although I get these rashes and hives or whatever, I continue to use it. It's not that bad." And she yeah. kind of sees herself as, I don't know, kind of buying into it as well. Yeah, I mean, in, in, in that way that horror can often play, like whether or not it's real doesn't ultimately matter, right? Like. Mm-hmm. It's real. It's real for the comic. It's real enough to where you're seeing the horrific effects and the idea that she's going to do this to herself is pretty is a pretty horrifying thought. And also that she's going to continue to sell it, apparently, with like what she's seeing occur. Yeah. So uh, what about the title, too, as we're wrapping up here? Yeah. So that comes up in the story. It's uh, the the title is called uh, The Meat Inside Me is Some Other Animals Meat or Some Other Animals Meat is the, the title. And that's the line. And um, I thought that was a really cool like moment where she's like, what if I'm what if I'm just a human on the surface? What if it's just my skin that's human and the 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 meat inside me is some other animal's meat? And I was like, that's a creepy, weird thought. And I love it. (laughs) I was going to say, I don't know about you, but I feel like every I had this thought at, at points in my life, I think just in terms of like, am I what's considered to be normal under the surface of things that I can't see as well. If you haven't been x-rayed, if you haven't been this, if you haven't been that, like how did you develop? I I think that it's like this weird curiosity. I feel like there's also a reading of this where she's like, she is herself like the aloe glow monster who is like, I don't know, like, like, like selling this stuff and like doing this to people. And like, she's actually some sort of creature. I think that there's part of that too, that capitalistic look. But there's at an it. ambiguity there. And 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 like you might be like, I don't know. To me, like I, I felt like this wasn't super clear because it's there's just not a lot to go on other than these images and a little bit of text. 
I mean, it's interpreted, yeah. you know, it, and I think that we're, we're touching on a lot of the things that are in the themes of the story, I think. I think there's definitely the beauty industry is being, there's a commentary being made there. There's a commentary being made, like you said, about body dysmorphia and the things that people will convince themselves of. And there's definitely the... Trying uh, to fit in. Like, it seems like she wants to fit exactly. in with her friends. And that's why she's like, one of the reasons she's going to start doing using this. So, you know, we're in our last minute here. I, I just think as an adaptation, I'm really interested to see what they do with this one. Because it is so vague, I think there's a lot of ways you can take it. Um, you bring in um, a woman director. You're working off of a woman's work. Um, you know, I, I think this is going to be a really interesting episode. Not saying it'll be the best or anything. I don't know. But it's going to be, I think this one's going to feel the most different from a lot of the other stories that we're going to see adapted here. It's going to feel the most unique. It might be divisive. Um, I'm really curious to see how it's done and how horrifying this like amorphous blobby stuff. You know, have you ever seen the movie, the blob Yeah, from the eighties? Yeah. Like that movie is like super cheesy and like, eh, the but... original blob is from much, much earlier than the eighties. too. Oh, yeah. you're right. You're right. There was, yeah, but I was talking about the eighties one, but like there are some really horrifying effects in that movie. And I was thinking about how, like, I, I hope we get some, like, John Carpenter-esque, like, horrific body horror, morphous, like, it, it, you know, putting this lotion on and then just, like, it dissolving your body or who knows what all is going to go on here. I think this is ripe to be adapted, too, because of the commentaries being made. Like, you can definitely extrapolate this out some and, and make some really strong points. All right, that's the timer. So let's move to our next one. So now we move into our pair of HP Lovecraft stories. Uh, the first one is going to be Pickman's Model, which came out in 1927. Real quick, I'm going to talk, talk a little bit about H.P. Lovecraft as a person because I think he is very important and we haven't actually touched on him much for the podcast. So he was an American writer of weird science, fantasy, and horror fiction best known for his creation of the Cthulhu Mythos. He was born in Providence, Rhode Island, and spent most of his life in New England. After his father's institutionalization in 1893, he lived affluently until his family's wealth dissipated after the death of his grandfather. Lovecraft then lived with his mother in reduced financial security until her institutionalization in 1919. So both father and mother institutionalized. Wow. He began to write essays for the United Amateur Press Association and in 1913 wrote a critical letter to a pulp magazine that ultimately led to his involvement in pulp fiction. He became active in the speculative fiction community and was published in several pulp magazines. Lovecraft later moved to New York City and became the center of a wider group of authors known as the, quote, Lovecraft Circle, which we have touched on with Kuttner. They introduced him to Weird Tales, which became his most prominent publisher. He returned to Providence in 1926 and produced some of his most popular works, including The Call of Cthulhu, At the Mountains of Madness, the Shadow Over Innismouth, and The Shadow Out of Time. So there you go. The Shadow Out of Time, The Color Out of Space. I don't know. <laughs> there are kind of some similarities here. Um, he would remain active as a writer for 11 years until his death from intestinal cancer at the age of 46. So again, pretty young when he died. Um, Lovecraft's literary corpus is based around the idea of cosmicism which he posits that humanity is an insignificant part of the cosmos and could be swept away at any moment. He incorporated fantasy and science fiction elements into his stories representing the perceived fragility of anthropocentrism. That's an interesting word. But yeah, basically it just means like humanity and, and uh, human culture being the center of existence. Um, and he, sees, he perceived that as being fragile. So Lovecraft's early political opinions were conservative and traditionalist, which I was aware of. Following the Great Depression, however, Lovecraft became a socialist. 
no longer believing a just aristocracy would make the world more fair. Throughout his adult life, he was never able to support himself from his earnings as an author and editor. He was virtually unknown during his lifetime and was almost exclusively published in pulp magazines before his death. It wasn't until a scholarly revival of Lovecraft's works began in the 1970s that he is now recorded, regarded as one of the most significant 20th century authors of supernatural horror fiction. So I did see that about his, his sort of political beliefs. Um, I did some more digging into that. It seems like he started life as being very conservative, very traditional. He supported the monarchy and he kind of, it seemed like he was almost un-American. Like he felt like the monarchy should actually be in control of America. But that started to change during the Great Depression. And he started to have these more like socialist views. As far as race goes, huge bigot, right? Like this guy was very racist. It did seem like he moved from all races should like basically like whites, like pure on white supremacy to all races should just like stay in their own places and like their own cultures should just stay separate. And like, he didn't want assimilation. He just wanted like everybody to kind of like stay where they are. I don't know. It seemed like, you know, I was reading these descriptions and like, you always are wondering about the point of view of the person writing it. Um, it did seem like there was a softening of his like overtly white supremacist stuff from like that space into just a more like casual bigotry. <laughs> Doesn't this reflect in his work some too, from what I understand? Like, so yes. Um, if you start looking at a lot of his work and thinking about what the allegories are there could be representing and even just like straight up the stuff he says, um, you start to see that like this is in his fiction. And to me, like I was getting that, a little bit, even in Pickman's model, but definitely in the other one we're going to talk about, Dreams in the Witch House. And um, he seems to me like someone who had a lot of fear. I read that he was terrified of doctors. So he didn't get, he didn't see a doctor about his intestinal cancer until like one month before his death, where he got it like diagnosed that he was, he was going to die from it. Um, so this is just a guy who had a lot of fear. He grew up wealthy um, very, very conservative. Um, it, it is interesting to me that as he, so he also grew up as like a, a Protestant, I believe, but then he moved into becoming an atheist. He got really into reading like Nietzsche and a lot of these like philosophers who are, who are like, uh, criticizing Western culture and talking about its decline. He believed in the decline of Western culture. Um, but he also was like tying that all up in race in a way that just really makes me uncomfortable. There's a reason I've never really read him. Um, but as I'm reading through it, I'm like, this guy is so influential, like Stephen King, Richard Matheson. Um, he he was based he was coming off of Poe. Poe was like his main literary influence. And then all these different authors. And, and I think King even said, like, if you've written horror after H.P. Lovecraft, you were influenced by H.P. Lovecraft. Like he was that monumental yeah. for the genre. And now it's just like he invented this. I, I, I don't know if I want to totally give him credit for it, but he. He popularized this cosmic horror thing where you are like humanity is insignificant and being and interacting with these like elder gods and like the multiverse and, uh, you know, all that stuff like comes back to him and like hugely influential in a lot of different horror you see everywhere. And I the thing I do like about Lovecraft is like his legacy has gone on to be rec reclaimed by so many people, right? Like people have come in and written stories like that, that completely undercut and go against the racism that he had sort of baked into it. 
and find ways to have a sort of quote unquote Lovecraftian story that doesn't have any of those values and instead is more about the the cool horror ideas that I, I think a lot of people recognize like are brilliant. And as I was reading, I was like, yeah, I can see why this guy's so popular. Um, it's just, you have to like shut off your brain to like analyzing the person behind it and like what he's saying through the work. <laughs> right. And I do think it's interesting. I've heard in the past that HP Lovecraft was listening to a lot of the thinkers of the time yeah. that were sort of, you know, getting into theoretical physics and some of these other things that he touches on in some of his stories and, that that way that he's able to blend these like high concept science really science but then into science fiction uh topics and blend it into fantasy with these gods and i think i I was thinking a lot when when i was learning in specifically in dreams in the witch uh house there's there's talk of like different gods and these other things and it got me thinking about some other fantasy that i've read that's very not horror and much more high fantasy where they start to sort of set up the world and the idea of these gods and the way that they affect the world. And I'm like, even some of these fantasy that are that are removed from horror are probably being influenced by someone like Lovecraft and the way he sets up his overall universe. I think that's absolutely true. Uh, we got to talk about the story itself we're on. We're running out of time. Pikmin's model. Um, I actually, I thought the story was really cool. It's about this. So there's like a guy telling, so in so many of Lovecraft stories that I've been exposed to, it's like, a guy relating a story about someone else. And like, he's like, I, I, it's kind of like secondhand, thirdhand kind of stuff. And basically this is this guy who knew this guy named Pikmin and Pikmin was this brilliant artist whose art was so dark that it wasn't like the art elite couldn't respect it because it was so dark and twisted and upsetting. So he got kind of shunned by society. But then this, this guy who's telling the story his friend was his friend and really thought he was brilliant like one of the best artists he's ever seen and then so he goes he gets invited he's like i want to show you some stuff i've been working on that i haven't shown anyone else and so he's (laughs) like i'm going to take you to this house i've been renting there's this cellar i've been working in and i've got all this like secret art there that i haven't shown anyone else and so he's like all right let's go see it and um it's of course it's in new england there's some talk about how it may have been previously owned by someone who was connected to salem and witches which will come up again in the next story and there's this like well in the cellar that like is connected to some maybe there's some tunnels under the ground and um, a lot of that cool creepy stuff. But then um, there's just just kind of this moment of like him walking him through the cellar and he's looking at all this art and describing it. And I just love the way it was described. Right? It was he's talking about how like it's so clear. Like there's he's like there's no vagaries to anything. Like it's perfectly drawn. And there's these just images of these like demons like. Just, I guess they were like they were doing all kinds of different scenes, right? But they were like wreaking havoc. They were um, attacking people. Like they were horrific in and of themselves, grotesque and just like visceral. And yeah, and scariest thing you can look at, basically. Yeah, and I love how he's like, you. I can't even explain to you just how like perfectly drawn this was, and it wasn't vague at all. You just saw it, and it was upsetting. It made me ill, and like he talks about how how, how that is, and he like screams at multiple times when he like sees different things, and, like makes him scream. And then he gets taken into, like, the next room, and there's, like, a canvas. Like, these are ones that are in, in progress, and, like, one has a blanket over it. And so then he, like, reveals the one in the blanket, and he, like, screams again. <laughs> um, and then rats. We get some, like, rats are apparently have, like, been coming out of the out of the cellar, and, like, Pikmin tries to shoot at them. And um, maybe rats, maybe not rats. Yeah, he, like, Pikmin, like, pulls out a gun and runs into the other room to kill something that seems... And he's like, these damn rats, when he comes back. And I'm like, he's fighting creatures yeah, <laughs> like he's battling yeah. creatures well it's so weird right and then like um he sees this the the one the image that gets removed like 
revealed that scares him so much is like this big hulking portrait of a demon that is so lifelike that he's like there he must have like how did he come up with this isn't you know and wasn't it also like eating a child or something or something or something like that might have been i don't i don't remember (laughs) um but then there's like this reveal of there's this like thing pinned to it and he's like i gotta see what this is it's like some writing or something but it ends up being a photograph and he puts it in his pocket and then um he ends up like leaving and um the final reveal of the story is that that photograph is of a real demon that's like in the darkness and you can see beyond the demon that the background is the cellar itself. Right. So ultimately the, the like there's something hanging off that he tore off the painting and it, it turns, that's what later he realizes it wasn't actually a painting. It was a piece of an actual picture that was taken like a photograph. Yeah. And it's the photograph of the demon itself, you know, making it seem uh, Pikmin, the Pikmin's model that uh, is referenced in the, in the title is the mo- is the demon itself. It like was a model for this painting. Seemingly all these things that he's drawing could potentially have been demons and creatures that he's seeing. And stuff. That he's seeing, yeah. And, and so, so we're out of time, but just like I, I thought that was like a very cool story and I love the way it plays in the space of the different art mediums and how I can just suggest things to you with language and y- he leaves it to our imaginations to fill in what that looks like. And it creates a really interesting, like, frightful experience as you're as you're sort of imagining what all this might look like. Um, and that's something that Lovecraft is clearly very good at. Um, and I thought it was just really good here. And I'm really curious to see what a, a adaptation of this one's yeah. going to look like. It's also the, just overall the commentary on art in general, right? Like he's he's making a commentary about all forms of art and the way that people view them and the way that people will shun them and how powerful they can be and how how yeah it's it's really interesting to dig into that as well well and where does art come from right like like origins of the, a lot of this dark shit um okay so let's we got to move into the next one so i'm gonna start my timer all right so our last story is dreams in the witch house another hp lovecraft story i'm gonna read a quick summary of this one because there is kind of a good bit that happens so walter gilman is a student of mathematics and folklore he rents a, an attic room in which It's called the Witch House in Arkham, Massachusetts, that is rumored to be cursed. The house once harbored Keziah Mason, an accused witch who disappeared mysteriously from a Salem jail in 1692. Gilman discovers that for the better part of two centuries, many of the attic's occupants have died prematurely. The dimensions of the attic room are unusual and seem to conform to a kind of unearthly geometry. Gilman theorizes that the structure can enable travel from one plane or dimension to another. Gilman begins experiencing bizarre dreams in which he seems to float without physical form through an otherworldly space of unearthly geometry and indescribable colors and sounds. Several times his dreaming self encounters bizarre clusters of iridescent, prolately spheroidal bubbles, (laughs) as well as rapidly changing polyhedral figure, both of which appear sapient. Gilman also has nightly experiences involving Keziah and her rat-bodied, human-faced familiar, Brown Jenkin, which he believes are not dreams at all. Gilman's odd experiences seem to escalate as he dreams that he signs the Book of Azathoth under the commands of Keziah, Brown Jenkin, and the infamous Black Man. Gilman is later taken to Azathoth's throne at the center of chaos by this group and is forced as an accomplice in the kidnapping of an infant. He awakes to find mud on his feet and news of his involved kidnapping in the city's newspaper. Gilman then dreams that both Keziah and Brown Jenkin are sacrificing the kidnapped child in a bizarre ritual. 
He thwarts Kazaya by strangling her, but Brown Jenkin bites through the child's wrist to complete the ritual and escapes into a triangular abyss. As he awakens, Gilman hears an unearthly sound that leaves him deaf. He tells fellow boarder Frank Elwood of his horrific story. The next night, Elwood suddenly witnesses Brown Jenkin eating its way out of Gilman's chest. The landlord soon abandons the house and evicts the tenants. The house is condemned by the building inspector. Workmen sent to raise the building years later find that Kazaya's skeleton and her books on black magic within. Uh, a space between the walls is found to be filled with children's bones, a sacrificial knife, and a bowl made of some metal that scientists are unable to identify, the skeleton of an enormous deformed rat with hints of human or primate anatomy are soon discovered within the attic's flooring. Okay, so that's the story of Dreams in the Witch House. Um, what did you think of this one? It was cool to see him sort of articulate a lot of these cosmic entities and having this portal yeah. this is the most cosmic like cthulhu mythos i could see was being explored here for sure this felt like what i expect a lot of the other lovecraft stories are like it's honestly it to me and maybe i just found it to be a little predictable as it's you know i don't know how old it is at this point is oh so this story came out in 1933 pickman's model by the way 1927 i don't know if i said that yeah, something more subtle about Pickman's model and the way that it was administered to us and the way that the story uh, played out. Whereas here, I felt like it was a lot of, we. I got where it was going pretty quickly. And it was fun to see this person sort of grapple with it. And I was ahead of the, the character in terms of reaction a little bit. But um, yeah, I mean, these entities, I think, are, the, are some of the most interesting and the way that dreams are being sort of because dreams are already that weird space where we're kind of in that cosmic reality so he, he thinks that he's dream walking right he's like oh i'm having this somnambulism i'm walking and like i love the idea of the room that has these like weird geometries to like it's it's like uh angled at strange ways like the the floor is is uneven he, the the all the walls are all just put together in a strange way and he's like this is gonna this makes this room evil and like um, there's this strange luminance, this like almost violet color that he imagines whenever he sees this woman and this, you know, Brown Jenkin, which mm-hmm. is a wild little rat ape faced human creature. And these creatures are crazy too. And I wanted to reference your story. They come from the void because you have, a, you have an entity that is kind of similar in ways with this like sphere, the spheroidal stuff. Yeah. Sphere like yeah. bubble sort of thing. It's funny. It's funny. You say that I had um, the editor at Buckman journal who acquired the story. Her name's Jerry Sampson. And in an and email, she wrote that she felt like my story was Lovecraftian. And I remember like pushing back personally at that because I was like, I've never read a Lovecraft story, so how can that be true? Um, but clearly, I've just been influenced like secondhand because you know I could see why you would say that if you've read a story like this and like I, yeah, I have these like floating orbs and stuff. So, but that's how influence works, right? Is like even if you haven't, in some cases, it's gonna it's gonna seep in. Absolutely, he's influenced all of horror literature to where if you've read any horror literature <laughs> or seen horror movies, you're gonna be affected by it. Exactly. So yeah, uh, and then he talks about this like polyhedral sort of like uh, shape that makes no sense and that we can't, you can't really perceive. Yeah, it's got starfish arms and like there's all this wild stuff happening. And then like there's just multiple reveals that kind of seem to be the same thing to me. And I think that's what you were talking about that, that are a little right. bit, it starts to become a little bit weaker because basically the reveal over and over again is it's not actually a dream. Dun, dun, yeah. dun, right? Yep. Like we get, he he has like a thing that he, he breaks this thing off and then he finds it in his room. He's got mud on his shoes. 
he keeps dreaming about this woman and going to this place, but then there's this mounting evidence that it's actually happening. And like the reveal over and over again comes back to like, no, no, this is really happening. You're really transporting somewhere. You're really interacting with these other beings. And like, even the end of the story, it's like that reveal over and over again, as they find the bones and they find the stuff and it's like, Oh, it was all real. And it's like, yeah, we know <laughs> like you've, you, you've sort of established that over and over again. Um, but you know, the, the details of what's happening are really weird, really creepy. And I like, there is like this because he's a, he's a college student. He does think about things in an academic way. He thinks about science, thinks about astronomy, and he's tying that to like early theories about multiverse. And um, that stuff is all super interesting to me. And honestly, my novel that um, I'm about to start querying involves some similar kind of stuff. And I think if you if you read a lot of Lovecraft and you read my book, you might be like, oh, he's clearly influenced by Lovecraft again. And I'm going to be like, I just read Lovecraft for the first time, you know, as of today, <laughs> you know, like there's the first, like, I think full story of Lovecraft I've ever read. Um, but again, I'm not going to deny the influence because I think it's just out there and it's just in, in the fabric of the genre. And some of these sequences were pretty, pretty wild, right? They, there's the sequence where they basically kidnap a child. He, he like is with these entities and they kidnap a child. And then the next time he goes into the dream, there's like a ritual happening with this kid terrifying and and like this the especially brown jenkins a creepy little creepy creepy we'll talk about him in a second but so the idea of these entities and and especially like if it's at the cutting edge of this if you haven't read something like this before i know like that repetition was something in in older material as well too like to really like drive home certain things and have people pick up on things so maybe that was part of think about think about pickman's model right like what he's getting at with the nature of the origin of art and the origin of these kind of ideas like i'm sure it was a lot more I don't know. I'm just I'm sure a lot of people were more ready to believe that if someone's writing a story like this, that maybe they have a fucking tap to to some other realm and that it's real, especially when you, you know, you have the surreal and the real joined together in yeah. some ways, like the, the things that are backed up by science that he's like re- really steeping it in science sells you on it. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool, man. You know, the idea of this like chaos realm and like he keeps seeing these like godlike beings that are like eight feet tall and they have starfish limbs and they're like, yeah, they're like shapes and stuff. And like, there's this alien metal that no one can ever, you know, he talks about how like this Miskatonic university, it's like still on display there and you can go see it. So like a lot of it, like it's one of those things, like if you don't follow up and look into it, like, yeah, you might believe that that is real and that there is this bizarre thing and that the story you're reading is true. And if you start buying into that, yeah, it's super fucking freaky. Well, and not to mention, like, again, if it's the first time you've read anything like this, this idea of cosmic entities making you feel so small in, in the way that Lovecraft stories do. And that's true. That's great. Yeah. The, the cosmic perspective of like humanity is not that important. And there's these other forces at play that are like timeless and they have like a disdain for humanity and... um it's scary. Yeah. And, and they can, they can literally like come to you in your dreams. Um, and then it's tied to this witchcraft, which like he mentions how maybe these, these, these witches, um, were, were, were aware of some sort of ancient knowledge. And so it extends this idea back to like through history, the supernatural arts and black magics and stuff have been like engaging with this chaos realm. And maybe that's like the source of some of it. And so it like lends credence to a lot of like witch thoughts and myths, 
it also does feel heavily af- affected by like non-Christian religions seem scary to me. Yeah, which I didn't <laughs> think was which I didn't think was the case in his his I didn't think that like Christianity for instance would be like powerful to stand up against a Cthulhu entity, you know. Yeah, no, I, I, I think there's he's... like crosses that are talked about and people are praying. Yeah. And... I, yeah, I don't know. He was he was raised Protestant. He was an atheist later in his life. I don't know where this was at in his sort of spiritual journey, but I think just he was playing into the like deeply puritanical because he was writing in New England. He's a famous New England writer, and at the time, like writing was not as nationalized and and internationalized as it is now, right? It was very regional. So I think he was writing to his place. And he was engaging with the like religion of a lot of the people in the area, I think, a little bit. The idea of people seeing maybe these witches had and like just all of this black magic had connections to some ancient knowledge and that ancient knowledge maybe being seated in some sort of like scientific yeah. discovery yet to be made and everything like that. Like I can see definitely people in the 30s and 40s. People love that, right? Like, oh, the people were, you know, they were right. Right. You hear a lot about ancient, a lot of pseudoscience comes up around like, you know, ancient medicine being better than today's medicine and all this stuff. So you can see like this is all he's playing on all of that. He's playing on, I think, fear of religions and beings and worship structures that are outside are like, quote unquote, typical ones. Um, I think he's writing to a white audience who are afraid of that kind of stuff. Um, so, uh, you can, you can start to see all of that, but like, even if you set that aside, it is just a creepy story. It's interesting. I like that. It's the most like Cthulhu mythos one we've gotten so far. Um, we are out of time now. So just real quick, you wanted to say something about Brown Jenkin. I don't know if you want to say anything else. about. Yeah. Him. I want to talk about Brown Jenkin, but, it, uh, getting to see in some way Guillermo del Toro having his hands on Cthulhu mythos and yeah. that kind of stuff and getting to see these cosmic entities like I think is something people have been waiting for for a long time so it's gonna be cool to see this get adapted um and then yeah Brown Jenkin is probably one of the creepiest like monkey rat monsters <laughs> like he like gnaws his way through the body of, yeah. of our main character at one point and it's got, like a, the face of a human and it's got like a beard and stuff yeah and- man so I'm gonna reference another podcast which I don't know if that's like a football <laughs> whatever for a podcast but uh on my brother my brother and me they have this whole bit about um would you rather have uh i think it's a cat with a human face or a dog with human hands mm-hmm. and i don't know if you know this but it's really funny I remember um, that. but i was thinking about that so much with brown jenkin i'm like it's like he's got human hands he's, and he's, he's got, got human hands he's yeah. got a human face he's like this weird like animal and i was thinking about that bit uh which is very funny whereas this was not but uh it just made me laugh um, also, we were talking about the the influence of Lovecraft, and I was thinking about Dungeons and Dragons and mind flayers, and so much of like like as much as like D and D was influenced by Tolkien. Clearly, I think you could see a lot of Lovecraft in there, especially with a lot For of sure. these like other dimensional creatures, gods, uh, gods and things, yeah. um, beings. Um, I think a lot of that goes to Lovecraft, and that's probably one reason that I am more in touch with that mythos than I. And letting on because like I've encountered it through other things and I think D&D is a big one because I've played D&D in my entire life so right yeah yeah okay so that we went a little bit over time on that last one but you know HP Lovecraft is such a big topic and I'm I'm sure we'll come back to him in the future we'll talk about him more in these episodes that are his that are going to be about his stuff I think at the end here I want to ask you what your favorite story was just very subjectively out of these five what t- which one did you have the best experience with would you like if you had to recommend one of these five to somebody, would you be like, hey, this is the one you should read? This is really hard for me because I was pretty blown away by uh, two of them. 
And so I'll I'll tell you which two they are. All of them were really fun. I'm going to give a special shout out to the Emily Carroll story because I thought that the art and that I love, I'm always going to be sort of biased towards a visual medium too. It's a really easy one to read too. Like someone could read that in like five minutes. (laughs) And very recommendable. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. Uh, The two that stand out to me are the autopsy and Pikmin's model. And the autopsy for the ways that you know, I wanted to talk about titles in this episode, too, is like the way that these short stories tell you what it's going to be about. And some of the time you're like, oh, are they going to subvert it? And you're like, no, the autopsy is about autopsies. Like yeah. there's multiple autopsies. Well, and he kind of he's kind of committing one on himself. And exactly. Like, yeah. They twist it and it turns into like, you know, a, an autopsy doctor being living through his own autopsy. almost. Exactly. <laughs> so and just the way that he approached that story and told it and sort of built out the, the city and this, the, the only thing that kind of dragged with it for me was the insurance stuff. I find insurance like sort of he kept talking about how the, you know, the insurance company was trying to find ways to not pay out these people and everything. I'm like, you know, ultimately, I'm very much in the camp of like fuck the insurance companies like <laughs> yeah. really quickly and and so that it seemed like, like he was also kind of in that camp though he was yeah. just like doing it but he was like this is ultimately what it's he about. had to do it yeah yeah and it felt like maybe maybe um michael shea or michael shea like had to deal with some insurance bullshit at some point maybe and threaded that into a story uh but i think my favorite was pikman's model i didn't expect it to be i didn't expect to, to walk away thinking hp lovecraft was going to be my favorite of these stories it's like I said, it's got this really interesting atmosphere and commentary on art and the subjectivity of it and the ways that it can be uh, interpreted. And then the way that you're getting these horrific images told to you, basically, and then you're having to infer what's happening. Uh, and, the you know, there's some there's some funny things that are in there, too, like this idea of this this artist having this giant cellar somewhere that like gets deeper and deeper as it gets scarier it's like i don't know a fun concept and it builds up all this dread to seeing this finally like it's like this huge shocking reveal where you see the creature built up really well yeah i'm with you man so (laughs) funny enough i i I would pick the same two so it's so funny i mean i feel like uh we should have a podcast or something because i think our our, our tastes are (laughs) similar um i i might flip them i guess i i really liked pikmin's model for the reasons you were describing, I love the intersection of like different kinds of art and like the the gulf between what we can imagine and what we actually see. I think this will be really interesting as an adaptation, but also has a very large um, failure potential because he, when you're showing stuff on screen, usually you're going to have to make a decision of like, do I sh- actually show the things that they're reacting to or not? And if you don't show it, then you have frustration from viewers who are like, show me the thing. Like, I'm watching. I want to see what the art looks like or I want to see, you know, the stuff. But then the showing you when you show something, it is it is always going to potentially be less frightening than whatever people imagined. So people have been reading this story for, you know, <laughs> almost 100 years, imagining things. And you're going to get a lot of people who who are going to be underwhelmed by whatever you show because it's not going to live up to what they imagined. So. I think it's got a it's it's a risky adaptation. I'm really curious to see what he does with it. Gilmar del Toro has like a great track record. Um, I don't know who the director of this actual episode is going to be, so we can talk about it when we get there. Anyway, very interested. I like the story a lot, but I think my favorite was actually the autopsy because it just and really it's just personal preference. It really lines up with stuff I'm really interested in, like the idea of this alien parasite reminded me so much of the thing, and which is one of my favorite movies. Like love that, and I love the idea of this creature that is so unlike what we imagine. And this parasite is like a, it's like a cosmic parasite that can get in there. So it kind of reminds me of the alien as well. 
It's interesting because this story came out in 1980, so it's like right around the same time as like the yeah. thing, and Alien was being developed by James Cameron. And something to note too is that it's it's the the entity is only threatening once it's gotten a hold of something. So like on its own, it's kind of unthreatening. If you ran into it, you could probably destroy it easily. But it's like so so cunning and like yeah, it's very quick seemingly too. Yeah, but then like it gets in there and it's so gross and it has such little like uh, regard for the things that it takes over. Like it doesn't care. It's just like it's you're a puppet to it now. It like literally consumes the flesh and like blood, um, but then also like the minds and the, the the idea of being trapped in your body as it's like being destroyed and like literally your body is becoming a corpse and you're aware of it. That's all super dark and twisted. And I love that it's set in this like scientific background, right? As we're talking about the body and how the body works. We have a doctor character. And then, yeah, just the creepiness of this doctor who's like, he knows he's going to die. Like his cancer is going to kill him. And yet he like is talking to it like this weird companion. It's really it's just twisted, man. Um, and like fucking cancer. I kept thinking that like the cancer was going to come back and like kill the alien somehow. I thought that he was going to underestimate um, I'm actually, the body. Like, yeah, yeah. I'm kind of glad it didn't happen. But like, I guess there is an implication of like not only all this other shit, but now also this body has cancer that you've taken over. So I, I don't know if that's a threat or not to this yeah. creature, but um. Yeah, I, I really like the autopsy. I thought that was a great story. It's probably the one that's going to stick with me the most and like um, something that I'm going to be thinking about as I go forward and I'm writing fiction of my own. Um, so, I, yeah, I really I really like that one. That's probably my standout from these five. Um, I'll, I'll, but like I will say, like as far as adaptations go, I'm curious to see what they do with it. But I don't know that this will be the best episode. But it was my it was my favorite story. So I'm, I'll be curious. It could be. It could be. But who knows? Um, but that's going to be it for our Halloween special, uh, our, our, our five short stories we've talked about now. Um, if you've seen any of the show, hopefully this provides some insight to you for what they're based off on. And if you want to hear our thoughts on the episodes themselves, make sure to come back in the following weeks as we will be diving into that. If you enjoyed our coverage, please let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever app you chose to listen on. Uh, Spotify now has the ability to leave ratings. Uh, of course, Apple Podcasts. We'd love to see some more new ones. We've, we've, we've kind of trickled off in the amount of reviews we've been getting recently. So if you haven't left one yet, please do so. You know something funny? I checked Audible the other day, and I, I think that you can leave reviews for a podcast on Audible. Yeah, or something I think like you can. Yeah, there's a lot of these apps have their own way to do it. So, like, we appreciate them wherever. If you listen on any app, check and see if you can, because we, we greatly appreciate it. Make sure you connect with us on social media as well. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at ink to film And, you know, you can add us on TikTok and any, any other social media platform for the most part. Yeah, we're on all of them. Um if you would like to support this podcast monetarily, we do have a Patreon, patreon.com slash ink to film, and we will be releasing some sort of Halloween special uh, covering something probably horror related uh, in the next, in the coming days. We actually haven't decided what it's going to be yet, but we're going to talk about it after this recording. <laughs> um, so check that out. If you want to get those exclusive episodes, um, they're, they're cool. They're usually about adaptation adjacent, alternate adaptations, things like that, or other experimental things that we just try out for Patreon. It's a cool place and we'd love to have your support on there. All right. Happy Halloween, everybody. I hope you have a good holiday. Hopefully it's spooky and involves some Del Toro uh, as we all watch this cabinet of curiosities. I hope it's really good. And it's again, good. I, I think it's great for the industry and I hope that it will uh, continue to be a thing that he will continue to revisit and adapt more. I, in my opinion, I would love to see some more modern authors getting adapted. Um, I'd love that. Uh, I'm not against, you know, some throwback classics. Absolutely do that too. Um, very cool stuff. And uh, 
hopefully we'll get more of it. So until next time, keep adapting.